Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. What promises to be a fascinating conversation about very important issues that are facing our planet. Q is a huge fan of the Hay Festival series um, and we have just announced uh, a new global partnership that will see us host uh, sessions about the natural world in Mexico, Peru and Colombia as well as tonight here in Wales. Earlier this year, we at Kew had the great pleasure of listening to Mary Robinson deliver a, um, a lecture on climate justice on the occasion her, of her being awarded the Kew International Medal. Mary's personal insight, drive and experience make her an important champion for the planet, for plants and fungi on, on which our, all of our lives depend. She implored Kew to be brave. And with this in mind, uh, we continue to evolve our contribution to tackling the challenges that face our world through science and education. Kew's scientists and horticulturalists are amongst the best in the world and are working tirelessly in partnership in over 100 countries around the world so that facts and data can inform critical decisions about land use and responses to climate crises that threaten our world. Um, I invite you to come to Kew, if you haven't recently, to both connect with nature and to enjoy our wonderful collections that underpin the, the important research we do. And in fact, we have a science festival um, taking place in July where you can meet our science teams um, and learn more about our work. Anyway, it is now my great pleasure to hand you over to Emily Shukra and Mary Robinson. Thank you very much. Okay. So thank you very much and, and welcome to everyone here this evening. I hope this is going to be uh, a fascinating and insightful uh, discussion. I'm sure it will be, Mary. I, th I thought we would start off, um, maybe you could just explain what brought you into taking an interest in climate justice and in writing this book. I always uh, admit very readily and rather humbly that I came late to climate change uh, because following my seven years as president of Ireland, um, I was uh, appointed by Kofi Annan as his UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, spent five years dealing with human rights for the UN, giving leadership, and uh, another part of the UN was dealing with climate change. I never made the connection. And then, having finished my term as, as High Commissioner, I had a small organisation called Realising Rights, which was working on economic and social rights in African countries. Because... You know, it irritated me that those rights were not being taken seriously enough. But if you don't have them, they're the most important. Rights to food and water and health and education and safety and life itself, obviously. So I was working with some colleagues um, and everywhere I went in Africa in those days, 2003, 2004, 2005, I kept hearing more or less the same sentence. Things are so much worse and we don't understand. Women would say to me, is God punishing us? And... Uh, I realized that um, if you undermine um, people's capacity to feed themselves, 
because they don't know what's happening. Long periods of drought, then flash flooding, or just heavy flooding destroying the town and the village, the school, etc. And uh, when I challenged um, some of the farmers in Africa at a meeting with Archbishop Tutu, when we became elders together um, in about 20, 2008 or 2009, before Copenhagen, um, and I say this in the book, um, I said, you know, I mean, I come from the west of Ireland. I know small farmers. They're always complaining about the weather. Is this what you're doing? Just complaining about the weather. And I remember still the way Constance O'Kellett, who's the first story in the book, actually, she, she's, she's a tall, dignified woman. She's a grandmother like me. And she just said, this is outside our experience. And she looked at me so sternly. So it was understandable, I think, that she was the first um, story in the book because her village was absolutely destroyed by heavy uh, you know, flooding that was, they'd never had experience of. And she had to form a women's group to fight back, was very humiliated by the experience. And then another story, I think it's the second story in the book, is a story of post-Katrina in the United States, um, Sharon M. Henshaw. And she had a salon in East Biloxi, not in New Orleans itself, but in East Biloxi. She was African-American, and she set herself on the wrong side of the tracks, but she had her nice salon where women used to come for their hair and their nails, full of gossip. Her father was a preacher who had worked with um, uh, Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement, so she had a little bit of that in her DNA, if you like, but she'd never been active. And her whole, the home, the salon, everything was destroyed, and she was in a FEMA caravan, a FEMA trailer for a while, um, of the, uh, in the United States. And then she and Constance met in Copenhagen as kind of climate-wise, grassroots-wise climate women. And um, I, I saw them relating to each other and um, Constance calling Sharon Mississippi girl. <laughs> you know? And the, the point was the two of them spoke about the humiliation of having your whole livelihood undermined. And, you know... I think for Sharon it was very interesting that it gave her a link with the developing world which she wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm. Just to be so totally, to have to beg in the beginning, to have to try to, whatever she could do to um, build uh, a capacity. And she became what she called the accidental activist. And um, these are my heroes. The, the book is 11 stories and uh, nine of them are about women, but there are also two good men, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> But one thing that struck me very much was within those stories, particularly the, the women, one, one aspect that was very clear was how, in many instances, um, they felt empowered when they had reached a certain level of education. And, yes. that somehow it, and I guess this comes back more generally to a concept that, that very much is embedded in, in much of what you discussed in the book, that aspects to do with development cannot be separated from aspects to do with climate, and particular climate justice. Yeah. And you often hear people say, or, or particularly in the context of the developing world, oh, we need to focus on development first. Hmm. But you would say that these things very much need to go hand in hand. Absolutely. And you know, the good thing is that the big agendas that we have now go hand in hand. I mean, for me, the, um, uh, you know, I was the special envoy of the Secretary General before the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, Ban Ki-moon appointed me in early 2014. So I was there in 2014 and right through 2015. And that gave me an opportunity to be an observer 
of the very significant negotiations that were taking place for two very, very important frameworks. The first one is the 2030 Agenda, with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And which side are we? Yeah, this is my badge that you, some of you may recognize for the Sustainable Development Goals. I wear it because it's the only badge in the UN I've ever liked, so it's nice to wear. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a handsome badge, let's put it this way. But, um, you know, I watched the messy negotiations of 193 countries, but if you read the 2030 Agenda, it's a remarkable piece of work. It's full of human rights, gender equality, leave no one behind, um, prioritize the furthest behind first. And it, it's well packaged with its 17 goals because it covers so much. It's a complex thing to become sustainable. No country is really truly sustainable yet, as you would know as a scientist mm -hmm. with Mother Earth. So this was you know, the, the, the work that was done. And why was it so possible to do it in that kind of nice way? Because the countries regarded it as voluntary was clearly they could pick and choose. So it was easier to agree. They weren't bound by it. They could agree it. And so they agreed it knowing they could pick and choose. And then I was more focused, because I had my role as special envoy on climate change, um, on the next thing in December 2015, the Paris Climate Agreement. And what I saw and observed was that the treaty that it was was being diluted as we went forward to Paris. Countries were not going to accept much that would be binding. But I was taking part in the meetings that were being organized before the Paris Agreement. And these were ministerial meetings and informal ministerial meetings involving ministers of environment, energy, some foreign affairs ministers from a selection of countries, you know, geographically. And it was very boring, very, very boring, because they all said what you'd expect them to say. America said, China said, Brazil said, Russia, European Union, they all parroted their lines over and over. But Tony de Brum, the foreign minister of the Marshall Islands, was one of those ministers, and he was really speaking for the small island states. And he kept saying the same thing, but it was very interesting. Do you want my whole island to islands, the atolls, to disappear? Do you want me to no longer be a sovereign country? Is that what you want? If you don't put 1.5 degrees, that we can't be above 1.5 degrees um, of warming above pre-industrial standards into the text, we're gone. We won't be there anymore. We have bought land in Fiji. We will be just a collection of people, but not, not, a, not a sovereign country. And somehow it got into the ear. And so we got this new goal in Paris of staying well below 2 degrees and working for 1.5 degrees. And I felt, I was pretty sure that I understood that that was for the small island states. But it had never been studied properly by the scientists. And here I'm in your territory, so I'm mm. going to be simplifying. But my understanding, the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was asked to explain basically what's the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, and how, if we have to, can the world stay at 1.5 degrees? Mm -hmm. And I think you know, that was really very interesting that they had to answer those two questions, which they did in October. And as I understand it, what they said, and you'll correct me, Emily, you know, you're the scientist, but what they basically said was, um, it is very serious between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees, because that's when very serious things happen. The coral reefs more or less disappear. The Arctic ice more or less disappears. And the permafrost seriously melts and puts more emissions up. 
And then we're into loopback territory, and the, the scientists are really worried. So what they said was, two degrees is the outer limit of what is safe. It, it, two degrees is actually dangerous, more or less. We need to stay at 1.5 degrees to have a secure, livable world for our children and grandchildren. And then they said interesting things. They said it is doable, but it needs political will. And this, I've been giving an awful lot of thought to that, how to generate that political will. Mm. And do you think, so, I mean, one of the things that um, is absolutely central to your book, and, and as you've just described, has also helped un and at times unlock the political process, is despite this being a global issue, it's individual personal testimonies yeah. that are so powerful. Mm. And actually, often, uh, no, I can say this as a scientist, often um, a, a more impactful than yeah. the science itself. Yeah. I guess it's because we're human, yeah. you know, and we relate yeah. on a human level to these things. Yeah. But do you think that that's an important part of well, moving forwards and what I'm now, putting that front and centre? Yeah, yeah, what I'm kind of drawing on the example that I saw of, I mean, the, the byline of the book on climate justice is hope, resilience, and the fight for a sustainable future. And it's how this is being done. And it's, it is individuals in the book. But um, what I've concluded is that because of the imperative of the science, not just the IPCC report last um, October, uh, where they said we had 12 years to 2030, we now have 11 years and we're in late May, but also the recent report on the loss of biodiversity, the extinction of species. Mm. So if you put those two together, that's very formidable. And to me, that means that those two frameworks, which when they were negotiating, it, delegates of the various countries, 193 for the Sustainable Development Goals, 195 for the Paris Climate Agreement, um, they thought at the time it was either completely voluntary or weak enough to be more or less voluntary in the case of the Paris Climate Agreement. To me, that is no longer the case. Science has kind of kicked in with the imperative of doing. And um, what I feel is, um, and I, I kind of, I've, I've boiled it down to three steps that I think everybody should take. The first step is take this personally. Take climate change personally in your own life. Every single one of us, of you. What does that mean? For me, it means, because I talk a lot about climate, and people said to me, well, you know, what about, you know, I have become a pescatarian. Um, as the former president of Ireland, um, that was big news when I announced that I was becoming a pescatarian, <laughs> and I only eat fish. I don't eat meat anymore. It also costs me, because I like lamb from the west of Ireland, and I, 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 I actually, I'm still in withdrawal, although it's more than a year now. Um, and... Um, when you've done something, and it could be recycling more carefully, it could be you know, not using your car as much, whatever, something that acknowledges that you yourself take it seriously. Then the second step is get angry and get active. Get angry with all forms of government that have more responsibility and aren't doing enough. Um, and that means city level as well. Um, and get active in supporting those who are um, becoming um, you know, more vocal about it um, or uh, trying to fight for adaptation, for biodiversity, um, all of the different organizations, the World Wildlife Fund, whatever, whatever organization. There are many, many, many of them. And the third one, I actually think, Emily, this is the most important now, and we don't hear enough about it. We have to imagine this world that we need to be hurrying towards mm. because we should be wanting to get there in 10 years, in 11 years. Um, and it's going to be a much healthier world. 
because we know from the scientists we've got to reduce by 45% greenhouse gas um, carbon emissions um, by 2030. Um, uh, and then we have to go to a carbon-free um, um, by 2050. So we won't have that kind of um, very increasingly dangerous fumes of fossil fuel and asthma and, and health problems that are, that are really very serious. And um, uh, it's also going to be a world that has to be much fairer because we have to implement the sustainable development goals. And that means we have to get the energy to the one billion people who never switch the switch for electricity, which is a big proportion of our world. I mean, our world is about 7.6 billion at the moment, I think, more or less. Um, one billion out of 7.6 is a lot of people who still light their homes with kerosene and candles. And I see that a lot in African countries. It's very dangerous. It's very dark. The children can't do their homework at night. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's real poverty. And yet we have the gadgets. We have the lights. We have the solar panels. We have the mini um, systems. We have the village systems. We're just not getting it there in what I would call a moonshot way. Mm -hmm. You know, the... The moonshot that John F. Kennedy decided when he said, you know, the, the Soviet Union is getting ahead of us in space. We're going to put a man on the moon in eight years. And that was impossible when he said it. But it, it galvanized energies. And not only do we need to get to the one billion who um, never switched the switch for electricity, what about the 2.3 billion, much more, and there is an overlap, who still cook on coal and wood and animal dung and ingest in, 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 in indoor um, uh, smoke and um, uh, fumes that kill very serious numbers. And these are the mothers and sometimes the children who are, cooking, who are beside their mothers when they're cooking. Um, you know, we could have a much fairer world. Mm -hmm. We could have an exciting world. And yet people think, you know, the trouble with climate change is it's going to mean I won't have the same kind of lifestyle. Um, actually, I think we'll have a much better lifestyle because I think we'll have a more relationships lifestyle and a much less unequal lifestyle. Yeah. So there's three things that you, you said there that seem to me to be very important. The first one was about um, individual action and the, the things that you can do. And one of the things that, was, that struck me particularly in, the, in one of the later chapters in your book, uh, you were describing uh, Natalie Isaacs. Yes. And um, how she was started resp yes. responding, trying to reduce her household yes. waste, and then said um, the feeling was addictive, emboldening, and she actually sort of you know, yes. became ever more challenging. Yeah. And it seems as though if we can tap into that sense yes. of uh, the sense of achievement yes. in, in this yeah. and the sense of ambition, then maybe yeah. we're going to make some progress. It's interesting, you know, she, she was in the cosmetics business with a lot of packaging, and she suddenly realized she had to take climate change seriously, because she, she watched one of the Al Gore original film, and she said, oh my goodness, you know. And what I like about it, she was a marketing person, but actually she found it very difficult to get other people to have the same commitment, because what happened was they would try for a week or so, and then so many other things would intrude. Mm. And, they, and uh, you know, it's a story of her persistence, and then she has her one million women, which is still going strong, um, uh, out of Australia, out of Sydney, um, of what you can do. I, I have a colleague who lives in Cork, um, in Ireland, in, in um, uh, Kinsale in Cork, and she has a website called Change by Degrees. And it's the same thing. It's this wonderful 
what you can do, the various things you can do as an individual. And now I think we're at a tipping point. I think people really do understand that we have to do this and it's serious and that actually everybody has to do their bit. But the, and, and the other, one of the other two aspects that, that you spoke about in particular was turning this from, uh, we often talk about it as being a big threat, but yeah. turning it into an opportunity yeah. and an opportunity to have multiple benefits on multiple yeah. levels in terms of improving people's health at the same time as improving, uh, yeah. uh, acting on climate. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to me as though changing the narrative into one that's one of yeah. uh, seizing this great yeah. opportunity yeah. Is, is also an important part. And I guess you know, that's what yeah. the marketeers would say as well. Yeah. It, you know, I had a, a lovely experience last November. I was at the Architectural Biennale in Venice. Never been to the Biennale before, um, but it was being curated by two Irish uh, woman architects who had become friends of mine, um, only because they asked me um, early on, would I come to the closing of it? And I met them as they were working on it and, and followed their whole thinking. And they chose the earth as their client. That was the theme for the Biennale. And they had ar architects from all over the world, young and not so young. And um, I walked through with Shelley and um, uh, Yvonne, uh, and they explained the various uh, exhibits. And I saw the world, and it's wonderful. You know, how we will not just have single electric cars, but actually more likely, um, you know, um, you know um, multiple, you know, you know, transfer together in groups because a single car would use too much energy. So um, buildings, recycling, the circular economy, um, even imagine things like from Bangladesh, saris that have been thrown away being retrieved for high fashion because actually there's a lot of the material that's very reusable. And a wonderful Chinese woman in remote villages in China doing aquapuncture, finding out what villages, what would make a real difference. And it was so exciting. And what they were also talking about was um, that we won't be having the same throwaway society, so we'll, we'll have more investment in the quality and reuse of goods. And I'm seeing that now. I, I have my podcast, which... Um, uh, it's great fun. I don't know whether anybody's heard of my podcast called Mothers of Invention. Um, two years ago, because I'm an elder, I had no idea what a podcast was. But I was approached to this, and they set me up with this um, woman called Maeve Higgins, whom I'd never met before. She was eight years old the year I was elected president in um, 1990. Um, she's a very successful comedian in New York. She also has a good social conscience, and she knew nothing about climate. And we started this pod podcasting last year, and um, she's only half respect respectful, which is most of the fun. Um, she's very witty, and she has a very quick manner, but her wit is very kindly. And um, what we do is we interview women in particular. We've also had, again, two good men so far. We will have <laughs> you know, men from time to time, but it's more... And the byline is that climate change is a man-made problem and requires a feminist solution. And, you know... <laughs> and the interesting thing is, Maeve will never explain. And I say, no, Maeve, you know, it's worth explaining, especially initially. Man-made is generic. 
Yes, men were probably more responsible because they had more power to be mm -hmm. polluting and doing all the things, but women were all responsible. So that's it. And a feminist solution definitely includes men, and the more men, the better. But it's a feminist solution, which means that we address issues of patriarchy, issues of the gross inequality of the, you know, the kind of capitalism that has lost its social contract. And that is part of our world today. You know, that um, we have this total inequality of wealth. Um, you know, the, the sort of, um, and, and even the tech billionaires who have such power in our world, such power over us, and we've lost um, a sense of, of actually being able to respond to that. All of that comes out in the, in, the, in the podcast. I have learned a great deal because we didn't prescribe, we want to listen to what this feminist solution is. And it's, it's great fun, you know, and uh, so anyway. <laughs> but so you, uh, I mean, you described um, how the science is now very clear on the, uh, the scale and the urgency of the response to climate change that's required. And yet global emissions are still continuing to increase like this. Last and they year. need to go yes. like this. Yep. Um, so how, I mean, you, you described um, the, the sort of current state of in, international yeah. um, uh, agreements on this and the voluntary aspects of them. How do we respond on the timescale that the science dictates? Well, the interesting thing is I'm more hopeful now than I was when I finished the book. I mean, the book was to try to get some empathy for people's lives who were very affected by climate change and the least responsible, hence the injustice and the words climate justice. But now we've got the children, look at yesterday, mm. coming out in millions around the world and reminding us of a, an intergenerational injustice. They are being well taught. They understand that we're not on course, as you said, for a safe world. We're on course for at least 3.5 degrees, which would be catastrophic. And in, in their lifetime, and in the, probably in their parents' lifetime if they're very young children. And so, um, you know, it started with Greta Thunberg. I actually saw an image of her as a very tiny 15-year-old outside the Swedish parliament. Not the worst parliament in the world, but she was rightly saying, not, still not doing enough. And um, we've now got the beginnings of a bubbling of a movement, a real movement. Um, I'm now very encouraged by the fact that women leaders in this part of the world, in Europe and in the United States, have at last begun to talk about climate change. When I'm with African women leaders, which I am quite a lot, I'm, I, I do a lot of work in Africa still, um, climate change is absolutely top of their agenda. How could it not be? because they're affected every day. Um, Grasa Michelle, my fellow elder from Mozambique, talked about her devastation when she went to Bera in her city when it was hit recently by a cyclone. Three million people, and the whole city is devastated. Mm -hmm. And then they've been hit by another cyclone. I mean, they used to have a cyclone time, but they were never like this, because the water is warmer, mm -hmm. climate change is aggravated. Um, and so for African women, for Asian women, it's become very much. But now um, I'm really very pleased. I've been at a number of different meetings and different um, collections of women leaders at different levels who are really understanding that they have to be involved. We have the children, we have Extinction Rebellion, we have young people, but we also have business. The business that's not fossil fuel. Um, as an elder, 
Um, I don't know whether, I'm, when I say I'm an elder, yes, I am an elder, I'm old, but, but what I mean is um, Nelson Mandela brought together a group of elders in 2007 to carry on his legacy, if you like, and he told us to have courage where there is fear, to bring hope to people, and to tackle problems, but not to assume that we know everything, to go and listen to communities, and to be humble, etc. And um, Archbishop Tutu was our first chair, Kofi Annan was our second chair, and he died last August, as you may recall. I was with him in July for his last mission to Zimbabwe, where he pushed himself to do the work because he really was interested to see if there could be a peaceful election in Zimbabwe that would help the country. And he got very ill, got pneumonia, and didn't really recover um, and died. Um, I'm now the chair of the elders, which is quite a responsibility. But um, th the point is that what we're doing is linking also with business leaders who are giving leadership. Um, the, there's a B team of business leaders who, um, in January 2015, so 11 months before the Paris Agreement, made a commitment in Davos to be net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and do it the climate justice way, which was a kind of very unusual. Christiana Figueres was thrilled because this was real leadership. And my role, because I'm not a businesswoman, is to hold them to account, you know, to, to track what they're doing. And they are really trying. And they've got the whole of We Mean Business that used to come to and does come to the climate agreements, about 400 significant corporations to commit to net zero by 2050. The problem is, the problem actually is politicians mm -hmm. all over the world. Um, you know, democratic politicians. That's the problem. Because they, 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 they have so much pressure over the next six months to the next election. It's increasingly populism. It's increasingly, you know, somehow we've got trapped into this lack of states persons men and women, who actually will see as, you know, the business leaders who are not fossil fuel can see that if we have a chaotic um, climate world, it's not good for business. So a lot of their interest in us having a safe world is for business reasons. Well, that's okay. You know, that's fine. Um, they, they're, they're a powerful voice. And, you know, the Bank of England, the Bank of France have been talking about um, the fact that if you're too invested in fossil fuel now, you're at risk because these will become stranded assets. And, you know, when that phrase was first used to me, I, I kind of said, because I'm not a scientist, I'm not, I'm not very good on these terms, I said, you know, what's, what does that mean, stranded asset? And the explanation I was given is, think asbestos, right. which helped me a lot, actually, mm. because we don't use asbestos now at all, at all, because it's too dangerous. Coal is becoming like asbestos, and yet coal is being promoted in different parts of the world. And, you know, as you say, the, the emissions went up last year. Mm. So, so, I mean, on the, on the scientific side, we often talk about tipping points. Uh, my sense, as you describe, is that in terms of both, um, if you like, consciousness of the topic within the public yep. and within the business community, I sense we're at a bit of a tipping yep. point. Yep. But do you think that that's going to be sufficient to unlock political resistance. Is that I think we need to see hard sense? decisions, um, you know, rapid removal of subsidies for fossil fuel, a real price on carbon that takes into account the externalities of the damage it's doing to us, the health damage and all the rest of it, but doing it fairly. I mean, what uh, Macron did was make the mistake. 
he removed a wealth tax in France, and then he snapped an increase in, in fuel with no regard for the fact that it hit um, the poorer communities, the farmers, those who had to work to, to, to drive for a living. And you know, there was no equity in what he did, and people got very annoyed, um, you know, fairly understandably. And it, it kind of set the, that movement back a bit um, when you had that. But it is possible, and countries have done... Um, it, the more the, the um, increase in the price of carbon the carbon tax, whatever, however it's done, um, is immediately seen as a dividend for people. That's the way to do it. And of course we need the just transition um, for workers in coal, oil, gas. Um, uh, that's very much part of climate justice. And, you know, um, I actually, um, in our podcast, we wanted to have um, some discussion on the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last October, but we also tried to get Southern voices. Mm. And we got this wonderful scientist from Botswana, Pauline Dubé, do you know her? I don't know. No, um, she was at the IPCC meeting, mm -hmm. and um, when, we got her on, when we got her on the phone, um, Maeve and myself were in New York, we do quite a bit from New York, because that's where she's based, and we had Pauline on the phone, and she said something that I've never heard said in quite the same way before. She spoke about having such empathy for developed countries in the difficulty they're going to have. Because you see, they're, they've got this big grid and they have so many workers in fossil fuel and they're going to have to deal with that. Whereas here in Botswana, we have to get access to energy. We're trying to get more clean energy. That's our problem, but it's somehow not as difficult. I have such empathy. I'd never heard that before. You know, it was actually fascinating. And she really meant it, you know. It was going to, and I was in Germany recently, where they now have a coal commission, and they've made a commitment that is ludicrously not enough. Ludicrously not enough. I mean, a rich country like Germany, and Spain is doing better. You know, they've, they've, they've said they're getting out of coal, and they actually have provided a significant fund for workers so that they will be part of the solution. And, you know, it, it, I mean, you're the scientist. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, so, so one thing that, um, for me personally, I go through this journey of being pessimistic or optimistic and pessimistic <laughs> and optimistic. And in this, this, uh, this winter, I was in a pessimistic phase as my yeah. colleagues were coming back from Antarctica, yeah. ever-increasing horrific stories about the state of the yeah. West Antarctic ice sheet. Um, but more recently, it, it, not least because of uh, it, Greta Thunberg yes. and the amazing yep. things that she's been yeah. doing about raising yeah. the profile, I've started to get a bit more optimistic. Yeah. No, there maybe a, we can there actually is a get real together. tipping point. There's a real bubbling. I mean, the elections in Ireland the Green Party have done better than... I mean, the, the, the results aren't out yet, but everybody knows the Green Party is right back up, which it wasn't, you know? And so, you know, things are happening. You know, they really are. Um. Now, I want to give plenty of opportunity for people to ask Mary questions, so I wonder whether we could have the lights up on the audience and start to take some questions from the audience. Um, now, we have microphones somewhere. Yes, thank you. Can you dive in somewhere? Um, maybe somewhere at the front here, this lady here with her arm up just there. Thank you. There's a couple of them in the middle there. I don't know how Thank you both, particularly Mary, that was inspiring. <laughs> um, I don't know if you need another job as a PM at any point. question I was going to ask, I work in sustainability education and the phrase that we use a lot is sustainable development and I find the tension in that phrase 
really difficult. And Emily, I was in your talk earlier and you showed a slide talking about the optimism and prosperity in, the, in that optimism. But Mary, I really liked what you talked that was less about opt, um, prosperity and mm. less about <coughs> that patriarchal capitalism and more mm. about relationship yep. optimism. Mm. But I wonder if you could think of a better phrase than sustainable development that keeps being used that seems yeah. very outdated now. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the elders is actually Gru Brundtland, the mother of the Brundtland Report. And, um, you know, what she was saying was we have to use the resources of this world and leave it in as good a state as we found it. And, they, and we're not doing that, of course, and haven't been doing it for, for a long time. But when I was growing up, you know, we were encouraged to darn, encouraged to mend, encouraged to sew buttons on, encouraged to hand down clothes. I mean, I had four brothers, and the youngest brother was always complaining that he got the fourth go of, you know. And um, we've, we've just, we've become a throwaway society. Plastic didn't help. Thankfully, we're out of single plastics now. How quickly did that happen? And I mean, it's how quickly things can happen. The ozone layer threatened us in 1985, and we got a binding treaty uh, very quickly because people felt, now I think people are beginning to um, feel we need, we need that kind of, but we also need to change from using the resources so much, extracting them so much. And I'm very pleased to learn about, I mean, I've learned all this on my pod podcast, slow fashion you know, in different parts of the world. And I'm, I'm actually determined now, I'm going to buy very few new clothes. Uh, I haven't changed size, thankfully. I'm just going to recycle. And if people get bored looking at my thing, to hell with it, you know? Um, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, um, I, I think we, I, I think that all helps relationships. Um, when we don't have this sense of um, everything being disposable, everything being extractive. And um, on the, web, uh, the um, podcast, uh, there was a great discussion about waste in one of the sessions. And Catherine Wilkinson, who's, I'm sure you know Catherine, mm. um, of the Drawdown Project, and um, uh, she was explaining that China would no longer take waste from developed, developed, developed countries, and um, other countries have followed China. And, and then she said, and you know, it wasn't even you know, properly recycled waste. I mean, it included babies' nappies. And then Maeve says, those babies, they, sh they should be better than that. They shouldn't do it. They shouldn't have these dirty nappies. And, I mean, think of those. I mean, I hope those babies are listening, because I'm telling you, and of course, we roar laughing. And in many ways, what I've learned, and I, I think, you know, I've only learned at this stage in my life from people like Archbishop Tutu, um, the power of humor when you're being serious. You know, when you're being deeply serious, if you're also funny, it, somehow people hear you better. You know, um, that's a lesson that I've, I've, I've really um, learned, and I wish I'd learned it earlier, you know, because I was a bit preachy earlier, and now I'm less preachy and hopefully a little bit more funny, you know, so because actually it does get the message across. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Next question. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to put a partial um, spanner in the workshop. Okay. It's only partial. Um, I, ha I have worked on European Commission and UN programs, and I, I have seen the dark side of both organizations. Um, and a particular problem, although in fairness, it's certainly not confined to them, uh, is a point you raised at the very beginning about the connectivity between things that 
don't at first seem to be connected. Um, what progress do you see in the UN, other international organizations, and across biz, biz, big business, and perhaps especially across major governments, in joining up much better? Because there will be false dawn cul-de-sacs, and then there will also be uh, perhaps expected or unexpected successes. So how can we maximize the latter and minimize the former? Has it got into the DNA of the organizations? They need to speak quicker, more frequently, and with better information and it, uh, in a genuine two-way process. I think it's a very important set of issues that you've raised, and too many to be answered in a, in a considered way. Um, yes, the UN has silos, and still has silos, though it's trying to be more one UN together, etc. And I think there's a reform process that's trying to encourage that, particularly at country level, um, so that uh, it's uh, a lighter footprint and more, as you say, smarter and more relevant. Um, that is happening. But we're actually in a very bumpy time for multilateralism. It's under threat from different parts of the world. And, you know, let's face it, from President Trump. Um, he's undermining, he, he's seeking to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. He can't do it fully because it's a treaty until the 4th of November 2020. And the next presidential election, happily, is the 3rd of November 2020. So <laughs> maybe things can happen. But, um, uh, you know, he's pulled out of... He, he's undermining the World Trade Organization at the moment. Um, and, you know, with, with, with the fight with China, but even if he agrees with China, it's going to exclude the WTO and the appeal structure of the WTO. And he's been preventing that from... Preventing appointments being made. So... It, um, there are so many ways in which you know, countries are no longer seeing um, uh, multilateral solutions as being relevant to our world just at the time when we absolutely need them. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's very, very worrying. Um, uh, that's why I, I, mean, I keep reminding about the 2030 Agenda and the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, um, because that's not so long ago, and they are two agendas which, if we implemented them fully, would help us enormously. And, um, and you know, as I say, um, they're actually good agendas because governments at the time didn't feel that they were compromising themselves or giving up their sovereignty or whatever. They, they actually agreed them thinking they could pick and choose, in my view. They can no longer do so, but but actually we're we're in a very populist time. We're in a, we'll see in the European elections probably a lot of parties that will try to um, you know slow the European Union. Um, there's a lot of need for reform of the European Union. Please let's not talk about Brexit. I really don't want to talk about Brexit. <laughs> but um, you know it, it's all you know part of a bumpy time for uh, for the very problems that we have. I mean, um, when we were together as elders in Addis Ababa last week, um, or not even last week, earlier this week, um, we were talking about a weakened multilateral system, the dangers of nuclear proliferation and the undermining of nuclear disarmament. I mean, we're at an absolute danger time. We're nearer the doomsday clock than we've been, and yet people are not aware. Um, it's unraveling, and countries are going back into nuclear weapons. And um, you know, Trump is now 
uh, um, you know, defying his own Congress to send huge weaponry to Saudi Arabia, so that it was, you know, it, 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 and um, um, India and Pakistan very nearly went to war recently, and they're both nuclear powers, very, very nearly. Yeah. It was, uh, an, you know, knife edge that they didn't, as I understand it. And um, so, you know, these are not comfortable issues. Um, and you know, I, I think if ever we need leadership on understanding that uh, the multilateral system is the great benefit that grew up from the Second World War and the First World War before it, and never again, and that whole sense of working for um, the greater good on behalf of, of the populations of the world. You know, so um, uh, um, your question raises so many issues, but um, it is an important one. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to take that question next, and then we'll go over to this side. So, please. I went on a march yesterday, but I'd like to know what else you can do. Sorry, so, where, where are you? Oh, yes, okay, uh, thank you. I went on a march yesterday. Yes? I would like to know what you can do so that people listen and so that I can grow up without the fear of my whole planet dying. Well... First of all, thank you for going out on the march. Um, I've um, been so encouraging of what children are doing in educating all of us to our responsibility. And uh, I've um, responded, as a number of people have, to the call um, to uh, really um, up the ante on the 20th of September and have a general strike. Um, I'll be in New York at the time, um, standing outside whatever part of the UN we all decide to gather in. But, um, you know, Extinction Rebellion disrupted London. What I found very interesting was the patience of Londoners mm. um, with that. Mm. I mean, by and large, people did understand that these young people and not so young people who were disrupting um, were very serious and that they were right to be serious when you think about it. And now, um, w hopefully, we won't need too much disruption to get to where we need to get to, but I think we need some. And if it's the kind of voluntary organized disruption that the children are asking for and that the adults are responding to, um, I'm going to be part of that because I take it as seriously. I have six grandchildren. The eldest is 15. The youngest is one. She'll be two in next month. Um, they will be in their 30s and 40s in 2050. More than half their life to lead. They'll share the world with about 9 billion or maybe 9.5 billion people. That's what we're estimating. 7.6 billion now goes up to at least 9 billion, I think, under current circumstances. It's very unlikely it'll be less than that. So, you know, the, the, the tensions and pressures of that. So the children are so wise to have um, mainstreamed what I've been talking about. I've been talking about climate justice. And I've been mainly focusing on small island states, indigenous peoples, least developed countries, poor communities in, like in Katrina, in, in, in rich countries. And somehow people sort of said, ah, yeah, but it's not me. Mm. But what you children have done is say, yes, it is you and all of you and all of you because you are not protecting the children of the world and you're not going to have a safe future unless we do it. So thank you for that. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Right. 
There's a question up there at the back. Could we take that one there? And thank you both, uh, particularly for your optimism about the fact that kind of there is um, something we can do and that we're, we're moving towards a world in which we can make this change. Um, I'm very interested that you both mentioned, and I personally agree, it feels like we're a bit of a tipping point at the moment where people are about to take action. Um, I think a lot of the work we need to do, particularly in the UK, will to decarbonise is about massive behaviour change, particularly around the way we eat, we move ourselves around, and the way we heat our homes. How do you think you translate that, and I'd be really interested from a kind of political perspective, the optimism and the buy-in to kind of drive climate action with actually fundamentally the whole country changing their behaviours? Yeah, it's, I think you know, that, that's a really, really important point you're making about changing behaviour. And I, I, I would just say, you know, who is more likely to change behavior in the family, start new practices, new habits, you know, you know recycling, um, turning off lights, all the little things, but little things add up. But it, it's more than that. Uh, we, we really need to get very serious about, um, uh, about imagining um, in a positive way, but actually changing behavior, as, as you've said. And uh, I think there are, you know, there are um, uh, leaders in this country who are talking about that, um, which is good. There aren't enough of them, but there are. And um, you know, um, the Minister for the Environment, Gove, um, has said some very sensible things recently. Um, the United Kingdom has been good on climate. Um, I say that because, um, um, as a former president, I had to be very hesitant about what I can say about Ireland. But last, in April last year, our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, our Taoiseach, said in answer to a question in the European Parliament that Ireland is somewhat of a laggard on climate change and we have to change that. So, of course, I have repeated him over and over again. <laughs> it was very, you know, it kind of opens the window for me to say it. Um, in comparison, the United Kingdom has actually had very good climate legislation, has really done quite a lot. And I'm hoping that that will continue in whatever iteration of that word I don't even want to talk about, um, uh, because it is really important um, that countries um, give that kind of leadership and do the change of behavior. And it means, um, uh, being, it, it basically means, um, you know, uh, as I said, getting away from the throwaway society, getting away from the plastics, um, using public transport, getting into clean um, transport anyway, um, uh, trying to get grants for people to um, make their houses more efficient in energy. That's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. You're the scientist. You could add to the list. And um, it's, 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 it's kind of... Um, nothing about it, to me, threatens a lifestyle. It helps relationships, because... Um, we should be working together about this. We should be having discussions in communities about how communities do it. I mean, um, my friend in Kinsale, uh, Tara Shine, Dr. Tara Shine, she's a scientist and a development person, um, they have now got a plastic-free Kinsale, and it's woken up the community, mm. and it's made life much better for everybody living there, mm. because now they're saying, what do we do next? And I think if communities all over this country can start with something like plastic, make the place plastic-free, then you get on to the next thing. And then you, it's the relationships of community that make all the difference. Yeah. And then that's the behavior change. It has to be together and it has to be voluntary, but it has to also be measurable and to purpose and, 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 and really deal with um, the, the fact that we're extracting more than... The, 
Mother Earth can sustain. We've got to change that, and we've got to, um, uh, we've got to, uh, you know, I mean, at government level, the governments have to. Um, it, the, the G20 has promised for years to abolish subsidies on fossil fuel. There are huge subsidies on fossil fuel, including by industrialized countries, and nobody's doing anything about it. And uh, you know, the oil and gas companies are beginning to talk now about what they're doing in clean energy. They talk it up a lot. Mm, but it's still but it it's it's a very small percentage exactly. of, of, their, of their power, and they also use their money, millions of dollars, to muddy the science, prevent the kind of change we need, um, advertise in a, in, a, in a distorted, you know, all of the things. So, um, you know, uh, I, I think if communities can give the leadership um, and I think it, it'll bubble up to the political level in a way that will, will probably accelerate that change, that behavioral change, which you rightly say is what is needed. Right. Let's have a down here at the front. Can we get a microphone down here? Great questions, by the way. Wow. Uh, good evening. My name's Peter. Thanks very much for a really inspiring uh, evening. I've just got a sort of bit of hope that's arising. I imagine elders, chaired by somebody who's got experience of social justice and now climate justice, bringing together business leaders around the world in a B group hmm. and perhaps practicing P group, like you were practicing P in 1990 to 97, <laughs> coming together, those, I don't, there must be some current P's out there who are up for change. Hmm. What about getting a group together of business hmm. elders and current P's hmm. and getting on with making change happen? Yeah, we are actually very much trying to do that. Um, trying to also um, talk to the investment community. Um, if the investment community, which is switching more into renewables, would really switch into renewables. That would accelerate the innovation, the battery retention, make um, renewables not just cheaper, which they're becoming, but also more reliable, um, you know, because of battery retention. And the, you know, the, the elders, you know, we, we, we are trying. But I, I think because um, we're, we're coming towards the end of our time, we've got a clock here that's telling us we're down to our last six minutes or something. I, I, you know, the word hope has been used a few times. I, I'd like to share a story um, from the first chair of the elders, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, or Arch, as we were instructed to call him. He even had a T-shirt, call me Arch, you know? <laughs> and um, uh, I was on a panel with him. Uh, it, must have been about, uh, it must have been about nine or ten years ago now, uh, in New York, a social good panel uh, in front of young people who were supposed to be using their iPhones and their iPads that to create a social media buzz so that hopefully we trend or, you know, reach a, a high volume of, of... And we were being moderated by um, an American journalist. And uh, Archbishop Tutu, when he's in front of young people, tells them how much he loves them, how much he believes in them, that they're the future, that they're great, etc. And he was waving his arms. And she said to him quite sharply, Archbishop Tutu, why are you such an optimist? And he looked at her in some surprise and he said, Oh no, dear, dearie, oh no, dearie, I'm not an optimist. I'm a prisoner of hope. And now I remember, I remember, you know, kind of saying, 
internally, wow. Mm. And the more I've thought about it, and I've thought about it a lot, and I've actually shared that story a lot, because I think it's really important. Because um, it's possible, and I think, you know, you almost hinted this, it's possible to talk about climate change in a way that makes people very depressed and very fearful. And very, and all the energy goes out. Mm. Whereas it's not as if the glass has to be half full, though it's almost half full here. Oh, drink some. <laughs> um, it's more that you see something in the glass and you work at it. And that is what the 11 stories in the book are all about. These are my heroes. Yeah. They come from communities that were not responsible for the problem, devastated by it, and then grouped together, women's groups. Um, uh, there's a man who is a trade union leader in Canada who worked for a just transition when his mine closed and was a bit devastated that it didn't work so well. He's now with the tar sands, in the, and he's, he knows as a trade union leader they've got to get out of tar sands, and he's planning for a just transition. There are wonderful stories of, you know, take your life and find out what you can do about it. And I think part of the doing has to be what I was saying earlier. Um, we've all got to take it personal, we, personally in our lives and do something. We've got to get angry with those who don't take more responsibility and let our voice and our vote be heard on that, but also support those who are working on so many different ways of conservation, of adaptation, of, of speaking about climate change, the children and young people who are coming out, etc., and then imagining this world. Um, that we that we want to see. I, I, to me, that's the um, that's the way to um, make the change. I mean, um, I've spoken to central bank chairs, including the central bank, the head of a central bank in Ireland, um, and their view is this is entirely doable if we have the political will. Interesting, entirely doable, because all you've got to do is change the money, mm. change from. Fossil fuel subsidies, put a proper price on carbon, but make it fair, and then start uh, the acceleration into the clean energy, the clean, um, the, the efficient heating of homes, um, all of the things that will um, accelerate and make a difference. And, um, uh, you know, uh, um, so um, I, I think we all have to be um, prisoners of hope because that's how we're... Um, you know, able to have the, the kind of energy and excitement about it. I mean, I was very excited. I'm now um, glad to say that I'm involved with the next architectural biennale in 2020. Um, Hashem Sarkis, who's... You were, you were in MIT, weren't you, for a while? Mm. Yeah, well, he's the dean of design. That I don't know if you know um, mm. uh, Hashem. He's the curator of the next biennale. And he has a great idea, a great vision for it. And I think, you know, artists and, um, you know, cultural institutions, the Q that we heard, I mean, I was delighted yeah. to speak in Q recently, they now have to step in and give us that sense of filling out um, the world we want to get to um, in order that we, uh, you know, have a sense of purpose in getting there and that it's communities locally who have to kind of lead in their community about what are the next steps. Um, and once you've started, you, you then go on. That's, that's, the, that's the lesson that, that is learned. You, you go on with your community and you make it um, uh, you know, more sustainable um, in a real sense, um, which we, ha we have to make the world. Um, you know, bottom up, in my view, is the way to get there. And you know, young people have 
really led by requiring that we do. So, you know, I think that, that, that's at least part of the, part of the issue. Now, we are basically out of time, but I can see one person with a microphone who's desperate to ask a question, so I'll allow it, but we, we, we have to be brief. Thank you. I, I will be brief, yes. It was just to say we haven't talked about biodiversity, yes. about you know, saving the forests, looking yeah. after all our plants, yeah. and especially as it's, um, you know, Q is involved with this. I just wanted to say a word for the plants, the trees, the mangrove yeah. swamps, and all the other wonderful yeah. plants that suck up the carbon yeah. and can be part of that. Yeah. And I wondered, you know, um, is that also part of the plan um, for governments all around the world? And, you know, here, more urban forests would be good, perhaps. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I did mention the biodiversity report, the report that came out about, um, you know, they were facing a huge extinction of species, but I didn't talk enough um, and I'm glad that you um, have introduced this in the final minutes because it's absolutely right. Um, uh, there's so much that can be done in conservation architecture, uh, agriculture, smart agriculture. Um, I, I, I've just come from Ethiopia. Um, the new young prime minister who made peace with Eritrea, who's let political prisoners out of prison, who's brought me back, you know, he tells me that Ethiopia is going to plant a billion trees in the next few years, he's going to use the summers and young people. So instead of young people, um, as he said, being on their iPads and being bored over the summer, he's going to harness um, them to be young people who are saving their country for the future. You know, make them excited about the idea of it, um, make sure that they will be safe and be, you know, get, um, I, th I don't know whether he's going to pay them, but he's certainly going to make sure that they, are, you know, are fed as they do it, etc. But he's, he's actually asking young people to be part of a huge project for his country. Um, I just like the idea of it, you know, that it, it, it's a kind of sense because um, Ethiopia, um, you know, suffers from very heavy drought and, and suffers from El Nino. When I had my mandate for El Nino mm -hmm. and, um, and climate um, in 2016, I went up to Tigray in Ethiopia and saw the devastation, but also saw where you had water management and trees planted, the difference it could make. Um, so I think it is really important. I think the drawdown project is very good. I think um, we're seeing many more ideas, uh, the mangroves, um, the, the traditional wisdom, the wisdom of an indigenous peoples. I mean, that, that comes out very much in the stories in the book. And um, the fact that they now want to be heard, they save the forests, indigenous peoples. Um, they're the best savers of the rainforests and other forests, um, and, uh, and they're pleading um, kind of to be heard and to be, to be part of that. So they're the ones that give us um, the kind of hope and leadership. And um, I, I do like the bottom-up approach. I think um, um, if, if, we can, uh, if we can be really intelligent human beings and follow the lead of children who've told us we're not on course for a safe world, do something and do it fast, then we'd be prisoners of hope and make a difference. And um, I, I am really much more hopeful because of the bubbling up of awareness that I'm seeing. And it is doable. And of course, um, we have to do it because we have to um, ensure a future for our children and grandchildren. 
So, Mary, um, climate change may be a, a, a man-made problem of huge <laughs> scale and urgency in terms of its response, but it, I think it is very clear that you are leading the charge <laughs> in terms of the feminist, feminist response. <laughs> so, thank you very much for giving us reasons to have hope. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.